Not much is known about the migrants who are held in detention while their asylum cases are pending. However, thanks to a librarian at San Diego State University and a nonprofit, thousands of letters written by migrants are accessible online. As the press hasn't been given access to the migrants, these letters are among the best tools to see how these people are being treated. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is Border Dispatch, a special episode of your San Diego News Fix. Gustavo Solis, you're part of the border team at the Union Tribune. And recently, you wrote a story about a librarian who's gathering all of these letters from people who are detained at the border. Describe this project. So this project, I think, is super interesting. It's been going on for a while now, a little bit over a year. And a nonprofit teamed up with SDSU Mm -hmm. to collect a bunch of letters from people who are in immigration detention centers. SDSU will read them, review them, um, redact certain information for privacy reasons, and publish them online. Mm -hmm. So you, me, or anybody listening can go online and read directly from the people in immigration detention centers. And I think it's so interesting because it gives you a window into these really opaque facilities Mm -hmm. that are often in the news, but we don't hear really anything about what goes on in the day-to-day Certainly. And are these solicited letters or, you know, are they willing to participate in the project? Like, how does the process work? So their their letters, they ask if they're going to be published. The researchers ask and get permission before publication. The way it works is the nonprofit uh, Detainee Allies Mm -hmm. have a network of volunteers who visit the detention centers. And during the visits, they either hand out pamphlets or they say, hey, if you're interested in doing this, you know, here's a letter where you can send, um, I'm sorry, here's an address where you can send a letter to. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how they, they get them. Makes sense. And it's so it's all like willing participants. It's not like, you know, a, a hack or something with like all of this information. So it's people wanting to share something and that something could be anything, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of these people have been in detention for over a year. You, you see it in the letters, 14 months, 15 months. Um, some of them are asking for help, like, hey, if you have access to an attorney, here's a little bit about my case. Or, you know, help, I'm a vegetarian and I don't have too many food options in here. Or they're just lonely and they want to communicate with somebody, like, hey, this is my story, this is how long I've been here. Mm-hmm. And they just want to hear from another human being, like, hey, I recognize what you're going through, I see you, something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So maybe about a year ago, there was intense scrutiny about the nature of detention at the border. There was the whole um, the thing with children in cages that really became a national flashpoint. Mm-hmm. What are the current conditions like? Well, most of the letters that we have are from the Otaimesa Detention Center, which mm-hmm. is not a family a detention center. It's mostly men, adult men. And the letters you hear now... Um, they echo media reports from, uh, you know, journalistic accounts of what the conditions are inside. You mm-hmm. know, there's alleged allegations of uh, poor treatment by the guards, um, um, racial abuse thrown at some of the detainees, uh, limited access to to a telephone to call attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, working for one dollar a day. Um, you know, things like that. And the letters really shed light on, like I said, what's going on inside that, mm-hmm. that we 
as journalists don't really get to see in government reports or in other um, articles. Like one example of that, which I was very impressed by, was one immigrant, uh, one detainee, made sure to write how much everything cost in the commissary, right? Mm -hmm. So we know now that a, a bar of Snickers cost a dollar and twenty six cents in the detention center uh, if he works for one day and makes one dollar a day which is sort of the reported rate mm -hmm. in these places is he'd have to work a day and some few hours to mm -hmm. afford to buy a snickers bar in there yeah it's certainly different mm -hmm. so would you characterize the the detention centers now as what sounds like slightly worse than a regular prison in a sense because it seems like that national outrage was really intense and it seems like CBP and ICE changed things a little bit. Have things improved since then or are they still the same? In terms of conditions, I don't know if uh -huh. they have improved or, or gotten worse. I don't, I mean, it's not a prison or it shouldn't be a prison, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these people are in there um, not because they've been convicted of crime, but because they don't have legal status and they need to straighten out that legal status in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a population in there that are, are there because they don't have anywhere else in the country to be. So they're there until their cases are adjudicated. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people who have never been um, convicted who are in detention centers indefinitely. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and they're called detention centers for a reason, right? They're yeah. not called prisons for, for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. The biggest change in the last year has been, I think, uh, the, the population has changed. Right, and that's because of some of the policies that the Trump administration is implementing in the southern border, restricting the flow of migrants into the U.S. Um, so whereas a year from now, um, you would see more families and children in the detention centers, now mm -hmm. those migrant families are being kept in Mexico through something like the Remain in Mexico policy. So I think the population today is, is different than a year ago. I can't really speak to the difference of conditions, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and certainly and uh, the government organizations haven't exactly been transparent about all this information, so it's kind of, these letters are one of the few ways of knowing what it's like there. Yeah, exactly. That's why they're so valuable. You know, the, One of the head researchers at SDSU uh, told me, obviously, it's valuable now, but uh, 30, 40, 50 years from now, where we're studying our own history of how we treated migrants at this point in time, I think those letters will be even more invaluable to future academics. Mm -hmm, certainly. And you've already mentioned it, uh, the Remain in Mexico program. Recently, some numbers were released, and you found that? Yeah, we found it was, it's been big news today. Uh, we got data looking at the Remain in Mexico program from January to September as the latest numbers available. Mm -hmm. um, during that time, about 47,000 people have been placed in the program and roughly a little less than 10,000 have completed their cases. Out of the completed cases, and this is sort of where the news comes from, uh, only 0.1% have been granted asylum. Mm -hmm. So out of roughly 10,000, only 11 have actually received asylum, which is a ridiculously low number mm -hmm. uh, by U.S. standards. If we look at what asylum grant rates were last year, they were about uh, 20%. So you go from 20% to 0.1%. Um, it's important to note that that doesn't mean 99% have been um, denied. The 
grant rates and denial rates that are broken up into like three different categories, right? Mm-hmm. You get grant, denial, and other. In Remain in Mexico is about 0.1% mm-hmm. grant, about 50% denied, and 50% other, which means the case was most likely terminated without a decision being made. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from a year before, it was about 20% grant, half denied, and another 30% were other. Mm-hmm. And even prior to the Trump administration, what was uh, the kind of rate of asylum like before? It, it's kind of hovered like around that 20%. Uh-huh. Sometimes you see it shoot up to 25 or 30. Sometimes it dips down to 16, mm-hmm. uh, 15. But it's kind of been in that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and that's pretty standard over the last you know, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. It's never gotten anywhere close to 0.1%. Yeah, it, it's a drastic shift. So is it safe to characterize all of these changes as essentially a bureaucratic hurdle on top of the hurdle of getting to the United States, because it seems like the Trump administration has finally found a way legally to do everything it can to prevent people from getting here. And it seems like the last kind of nail in this, you know, asylum coffin was just making it exceedingly difficult to even get to the hearing in the first place, right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I think that's sort of by design, right? The Mm -hmm. federal government said remain in Mexico is to deter people from asking for asylum. And they want less people coming over here and asking for asylum. The um, claim was that a lot of people used the asylum system and took advantage of the asylum system and used, uh, you know, quote unquote, loopholes within that system to come Mm -hmm. into the country and just stay here indefinitely, independent of how legitimate their asylum claim was. Mm -hmm. so to that end, yes, programs like Remain in Mexico or Metering, which we've talked about before, they put up more barriers, not just bureaucratic, but legal barriers on mm-hmm. people from getting asylum. So it it's only logical that the numbers of uh, grant rates would decrease. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And as of now, are there any legal challenges or other kind of surprises, I suppose, that could upend this process? Because it seems like every move that Trump makes an administration, there's some kind of legal backlash that kind of suspends the action for a little bit. Does such a thing exist for MPP or is that still in place? Pretty much every single one of the Trump administration's asylum policies have been challenged in court and are currently being challenged in court. Uh, There are some lawsuits pending not just about the entire policy overall, but specific um, processes within the policy. Yeah, so for example, like the, the lawsuits range from the entire program is illegal to processes within the program is illegal. One of mm-hmm. the latest ones was about a lack of access that immigration lawyers have to uh, fear of return to Mexico interviews, right? Mm-hmm. Which is for people in Remain in Mexico who say, hey, I'm being targeted by Mexican criminals now I want to be in the US lawyers were having a hard time getting into those interviews and there there is a lawsuit filed right here in San Diego over that right now mm-hmm. and it's worth noting that a person who was sent back under MPP uh, was murdered in Tijuana uh, recently so that thing that many are saying could happen has happened right right and, and people who have looked at this program for the year that it's been implemented will tell you that's likely not an isolated incident. Right? Mm-hmm. There have been researchers who have documented more than 650 cases of people in 
remain in Mexico being kidnapped, assaulted, robbed, or worse Mm -hmm. over there. Um, And those are only the ones that are reported that we know about. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Uh, Anyone who's interested in looking at the letters can read them for themselves. Um, Obviously, it helps if you speak Spanish, but Mm -hmm. there are quite a few written um, by English speakers as well, because not all asylum seekers are from Central America. There's actually quite a few from... um, from Cameroon and, and uh, Congo, uh, mm-hmm. Haiti, you know, different countries where, where people speak French and English as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Gustav Solis, thank you so much. Thank you. In other border news, a report from the American Friends Services Committee says CBP and ICE are violating the human rights of migrants. The main criticism is the violation of the Flores Agreement, which says a minor can't be kept for more than 20 days. CBP's response to the report is that they've beefed up their policies and invested nearly a billion dollars into humanitarian costs, including medical care and shelters. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. If you also like your news in your email inbox, we've got you covered. You can sign up for breaking news, top headlines, business, sports, entertainment, watchdog, caregiving, and more. We've also got Balatines in Espanol, plus emails from Pacific Magazine and a host of community newspapers. Just go to uniontube.com newsletters. Until next time.